Hey listeners, we've loved delving into the business of wine with you and our guests. Your feedback via email, text, social media, and by joining us on our live episodes on Clubhouse has meant the world to us, and we keep striving to do better and better. Some of you have asked on how you can help support the show. So we've decided to launch on Patreon, where your contributions can offset the cost of the show and you can get access to our full library of episodes with more benefits to come. To become a patron of X Chateau, go to patreon.com slash X Chateau to lend your support starting at $5 a month. You can find the link in our show notes or on xchateau.com. We will give a shout out to all new patrons each episode. Welcome to X Chateau. X Chateau. The podcast that navigates the business of wine with unique perspectives and insights with your hosts, Robert Vernick and Peter Young. Welcome to this episode of X Chateau. Today, we are interviewing Jason Wise, the director of the Psalm Films and founder of Psalm TV. Jason has single-handedly created an entertainment-focused wine media empire. It started with the movie Psalm and its sequels. Now they have numerous podcasts and a subscription content service featuring high-quality video episodes on a variety of topics of food and wine. Jason, welcome to the show. Hey, it's a pleasure to be on, guys. How are you doing? Great. I was hoping you give Peter and I a brief overview of your background and how you got into forming this wine media empire. Oh God, I mean empire. I don't know if it's an empire. It's sort of more of like some small town in ancient Rome or something. But I have to figure out where and how to answer this because it has happened, you know, if you stand at the top of a mountain and you sort of push a small snowball down and by the end of it, you've ruined an entire village at the bottom. That's kind of where I am with the story. So I bartended, I went to film school. My whole thing with this started as a filmmaker, without a question. And so I didn't start where I was a wine education person or anything like that. I got into wine for two reasons. One, history. I love history. Two, I found a lot of stories that we could actually make films about. And three, my now wife's father loved wine. And I realized that was a quick way to marry this woman, (laughs) was to make him impressed. (laughs) And so during the process of all of that stuff, I really do believe it. I think you guys would agree. Wine sort of chooses you, right? Mm -hmm. In a strange way, whether you like it or not. For sure. You get hooked on it for some reason. It's not necessarily for the money. You do. Also, you know, keep in mind, we made this film, Psalm, and there's a million projects and tons of people trying to make films and be successful. This one happened to work. So it was this very interesting moment that was not just like a match strike. It was literally a flamethrower into my career. Right place, right time. Made a film that was good enough to be at that place. And so we got lucky. And so now I'm not entirely sure how I got here, but I know I drink way too much. (laughs) So do we. And hopefully drinking well. Pretty better over the years. So digging a little bit into Psalm, which came out in 2012, that was a huge success. And as you said, was a flamethrower, I guess, in your career in wine. What inspired you to make the film? And how did you come up with the concept of shadowing or following around these guys who spit a lot of wine? (laughs) Yeah, they didn't spit as much as they should have. When (laughs) I made the film, you know, I was fresh out of film school. I did not, and I have to say this because it may sound nuts now, but I didn't intend to make documentaries. I've always been into nature docs and things like that, but I thought of I was going to be in most of what I did in film school. In fact, all was narrative with actors. And so I got a job through a number of paths, but I got a job directing a travel show for PBS. And my wife produced it. She was my fiance then. And Jackson, who is the cinematographer and producer on everything we do, he shot it. And we didn't meet on the show. We sort of brought each other into the show. And we traveled the entire world, and I was in a lot of places that were, to say wine-focused is an understatement, Tuscany and all over Bordeaux and Cognac and just incredible places around the world. And so it really, really slapped me with history, the culture, and I think one thing that people 
listening that are in the wine business know is it is probably one of the most generous and friendly and incredibly giving industries in the world. And so when I was trying to make my first film, I set it in a wine region of Champagne. It was going to be set during World War I. It would have been a very expensive film, at least from my world. And I was having trouble getting it together. And during that process, I was lucky enough to meet a fellow server named Brian McClintock. He was serving at a steakhouse. We would all drink every night and hang out in someone's garage. He's the one who was going through the early stages of the quartermaster Sommelier is why I was trying to make this film. And he was like, hey, you should come and watch this practice we do. Now, Brian and I all played sports in high school and everything, and we were buddies in that regard. And so I came and saw him practice, and I saw what I would equate to be like sort of a sports film. I saw a bunch of guys, and it really was mostly guys. And in fact, I think if you know the wine industry, especially 10 years ago, it was mostly guys. (laughs) And so they were all sitting there. They were all giving each other a lot of crap. I watched this, and I went home, and I just couldn't get it out of my head. It burrowed its way into the back of my skull as an idea of what if. And then I met Ian Cobble. And Ian is the obsessive blonde-haired guy who is a dear friend of mine now, obviously. And when I met Ian and I saw how incredibly determined some would say to an unhealthy manner to become a master sommelier, he was, it was exactly how I felt about trying to make my first film. And I realized that if I just point a camera at this kid, I'm going to end up either killing myself, both of us, or ending up with a film. And the very, very fortunate luck that my wife is a really good story producer and Jackson's a great cinematographer. This is the first thing we ever made. So that's how that happened. It conceived itself in a weird way. And if you were a documentary filmmaker, the most important thing is to try to shut up and listen the best you can. Because that story itself walked up to me and said, if you're listening, there's a great story. And so that's very lucky there. You can't force a documentary to go the direction you want it to. You can hurt it. But so that basically was the big bang theory on that one. And why do you think it was such a success? First of all, if you have any situation, and I think it could have honestly been, I'm glad it was about wine, but it could have been about race car drivers or people collecting some collectible or obsessive guitar players or something. I think honestly, when you find people who will stop at nothing to accomplish a goal, you have an incredible set for a documentary. So I think it was successful because of just the personalities that exist. That is first and foremost. Then also it builds to something, an actual event. So it had this kind of horse race, sports film type of mentality to it. So I think that the success wasn't magic. I think you can see it in the bones of the film in that even if you're like, I don't like wine, I'm not interested in this world, you're going to go, I have to keep watching to see who passes. So it had this kind of stickiness to it. And I think that's number one. Number two, the industry being like the wine industry was completely positioned and ready for something like this. I was lucky enough that the film was good enough to be received. But it really was kind of changing in a massive way, or at least it was ready to be shown the changes that already happened. And so when you look at some, a lot of people looked at it and they're like, this isn't even a wine film. And I don't disagree with that in some ways. I think the old kind of, I hate to pigeonhole people, but like the old wine writer group from the 80s and 70s kind of looked at this and went, the hell is this? This isn't a PBS special of Jancis Robinson tasting sherries. And so it was a very different way to look at wine. And I think it kind of, for good and bad, it humanized this stuff and it took it outside of the critic and introduced a whole new group of people who can tell you what to drink instead of a magazine or whatever else. And so, you know, I think that's my best answer as to why it was successful is just, it was the right place at the right time. And I don't care what film you're talking about. I'm talking to Jaws. It was the right place at the right time. There were enough theaters to put it in. The climate was right. The rating system was right to make it PG. The same goes with some. People were also really into docs. Netflix had just happened. And to a large scale where like your aunt would watch a documentary 
If you went back 10 years, nobody watched a documentary. You sat in science class and dozed off while your teacher put a documentary out. doesn't mean there weren't great ones being made. It just wasn't what you'd think of as entertainment. That's a lot of confluence there, but I think that that's probably the way I would answer that question. Why do you think that no one's uncovered this venue of storytelling in the wine industry prior? Is it just that confluence of points? Is it that fact that you put a number of Master Psalm candidates in a room like the original real world and eventually just the story told itself? Is it just that you knew those people and you had access? What prevented this story from being told earlier? These films have always been not great because they've been made by winemakers or wine people or wine writers. The thing that is always going to exist is that, now maybe this is just that because it's my profession, but I believe you need an outsider to peer into a world to make it interesting to outsiders. And so most wine films, I mean, even if you look at things like Mondovino or things, which I don't particularly care for, I'll be honest with you. But if you look at that film, it was made by Somalier. It is deep inside baseball that if you are not in the business, you will probably find excruciating. Or it'll take you several times to finish it or whatever, you know, whatever the thing is. The one thing with Sam was I didn't look at it that I was like, hey, my audience is the wine world. I looked at it like, hey, my audience is anybody that wants to watch a good story. And obviously, the naivety, how stupid and naive you have to be to make a film, I can't even tell you. The other answer is it is so hard to do this. And I earned this so I can say it. It was a son of a bitch to make that film. It took years. It took hundreds of no's. You talk about a world that believed it was the most important in the world. The quartermaster sunlight, especially then, was like almost secret society that was right out in the open. You know, I had to deal with all of these different big personalities. And so there were a million times to give up, a million times. And somehow, if I tried to, my wife wouldn't let me. Or if someone else tried to say no to us, we were just persistent. And that's part of documentary filmmaking. A wine person is not necessarily going to push that hard because they have another job. Me, as a broke filmmaker, so this was all I had. <laughs> and it's naive, but you don't do stuff like that. It's like if you have kids, if you know how hard it was when you have kids, you probably wouldn't have them in the first place. Naivety is what makes the world progress. Anyways, I mean, you know, I could talk forever about this because it was also a wonderful time in my life. So fun. So do you think then in terms of the nascent demand that you uncovered in the market or appetite for this type of storytelling around wine, did you create it? Or did you just uncover it? Because now you've built multiple iterations, sequels after the Psalm, and now you have this Psalm TV. I'm just curious on how do you quantify the demand that you're creating for this type of content? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I really do think that when you put something out in the world like Psalm, the audience makes it what it was. And so it's weird because it's an out-of-body experience. I mean, I can be like, yeah, I did this and I changed the business, but I didn't. The film did, and the film did because people latched onto it. It might seem like A plus B equals C, but it's really not. It's really like A plus B equals coconut when you're trying to make a successful film. The truth of that is, yes, I'm sure the work my team and I did on some and and the cast, I mean, the cast is widely known in the wine business. They can't go anywhere without being the people who were in that movie. And I think that's for good and bad. But the truth is, I do think it made and changed a lot. And that's why you see the second film was a wine film. I wanted to show what these people were crazy about. What are they obsessed about? It wasn't just that they are obsessed because we really didn't say anything about wine in Psalm 1. And then the third film, I wanted to bring it back to kind of show the bullshit that exists. And we have a fourth film coming in September, which is, you talk about insane. I don't even know how to describe this one. It's like the origin of wine and religion and wars broke out while we were filming. (laughs) Kind of getting back to that history context. Yeah, that's something I'm really big in, but there is demand. And I think when you start thinking about niches, I don't look at wine as this small niche. I don't look at food as a small niche. And people who do, I mean, we're not talking about people who collect carburetors in a car. How many people actually drink wine? My thing is, I just think it's the storytelling. So I do think that there's a huge audience for it. And I wish 
every day I wake up and I wish there were more good films about wine because it would just make the market bigger. But I keep finding that making stuff about wine and making stuff about bourbon and making stuff about any of these topics that are seemingly so enjoyable are really difficult to pull a story out of because a glass just sits there static. It doesn't do anything. It's not like making a film where you're following soldiers invading a place. There's frenetic movement. Nothing happens. So you have to create all of that movement. It's a tricky thing. But I do think that some, and I think a lot of people, whether they like it or not, would agree that it's set an awareness that I think made it bigger, probably. Yeah, I mean, obviously you have your super high production values, but at that time you had like Top Chef. Food was getting hot as well. And you didn't have the equivalent of wine. You had famous celebrity chefs at that point, kind of. And then also, like, even if you look on YouTube, maybe not then, but if you look at YouTube now, like, there's a ton of food channels. There's not really a ton of great wine channels. It's a really hard space. And clearly, you have come up with a way to tell the stories and deliver content on a wide range of wine topics that it seems like other people are struggling to crack. I think the other thing, too, goes back to looking at it as filmmakers, always. Even if we are doing an educational masterclass series or something like that, which has to exist. I mean, you have to have that stuff because there are people who want to understand Beaujolais and why it's here and is it part of Burgundy and why did they create it? Whatever. You have to have that stuff. But truly, if you look at, we have a film coming out about a bottle of Perry Jouet from the 1870s that gets auctioned off at Christie's. You think about it, it's like, okay, that's a story about a bottle of wine. But what it really is a story about is what that bottle survived, World War One, all these things, but then also the idea of wine as art, the auction system. It's more of a business film probably than anything. And so we've sort of looked at all of these projects, and it goes the same with food. Food is pretty, and it does come together quickly, so it's a lot easier to do food than wine because you can synthesize ingredients into something, and then your brain is tricked that there was a story. Sometimes there is, but cooking shows work for that reason. Wine pairing shows are ghastly. You're just watching somebody stand there It's just not the same. It's like apples and bananas. They don't mix. And so I think that truly you have to think about it with a story standpoint and say, like any other film, okay, yes, Alien is about a monster in the ship, but what's it really about? And I know it sounds really pretentious and highbrow, but the truth is you have to think about this stuff as like, it's not a wine film. It's a film about somebody dealing with trauma. They happen to be in the wine industry or whatever. And when you do approach it that way, what you get is a story where you go, wow, wine is about a lot of stuff and there is no limit. We'd like to understand the business model of how all the wine media works because we just have no idea. (laughs) I don't know if I do either. What is the business model behind making a movie like some? You know, I think we've been fortunate enough to sort of create a business model because one film was successful and you're able to kind of hopscotch and figure out how to take some of the profits from that. It's no different than any other way of doing media. I think there's no way to answer this without tying it into why we created some TV because the business has both changed and stayed the same so much since. When we made some, theaters were 10 times what they are now and probably 100 considering the pandemic. And so our film would go to theaters, it would gross money, but theaters were really a huge marketing device. And the reviews some got and all that stuff, it got it picked up by Netflix. And Netflix is a streaming service and then it blew up on iTunes prior to Netflix. And so you have all these different places where you do get revenue, but you have to be strategic. Some of them are not actual net money, some are gross. And so it's no different than any other thing you're trying to sell. But in the case of what we did is we created SOMTV so we could literally control every step we could. And it wasn't out of a control thing. It was because we had to, or there is no way to make money. Because by the time you get paid by Amazon, it's six and a half months after that film went up that took you two years to make. It's not a great business model. And so we needed to be in production on five, six, sometimes 12 projects at once because they finish at different times. 
And so that's why we also need Sam TV because you know Hulu is going to look at you and go, we don't have time. You're a little documentary and that might be great revenue for you, but we need it right now. And so it's a very, very roundabout way to answer the question. But I think that it's no different than if you were to make any other documentary. We just chose to try to make it sustainable and not go, all right, I made a film. Now I start over every time I make a movie. When you get picked up by Netflix, what does that mean? Do they just pay you a fixed amount or is it somehow based on performance or something like that? Oh boy, you guys got eight hours here, right? (laughs) (laughs) Basically, when you make a film, oftentimes you have to have a distributor. That is changing to some extent, but you still need someone that can put the word out, has connections, sells it for you, sometimes is a sales agent. This is a, your audience is mostly wine people, I would assume, right? Mm -hmm. Yes. You got to think about the three-tier system here. If you ask somebody to explain, how do I get my wine on a shelf in Pennsylvania? That is kind of the question you just asked. It's very complicated because it's political. You got to bribe people with stuff. You got to be really friendly. You got to put yourself out there. You got to be lucky. You got to be in the right place. And so when Netflix gets it, they're often dealing with your distributor and they pay the distributor. Hopefully the distributor is honest. The distributor and you have a deal. Whatever percentage goes to them goes to you. And then there's some costs off the top for some other reasons. And then they pay you quarterly after they get paid quarterly. Sometimes it's money up front from Netflix, but then your distributor decides, we're going to break that up and pay you quarterly. Whether they tell you the truth or not, you don't know. It's a very wild situation. I've been lucky to work with good distributors and it's not been a bad situation, but it's the wild west. And it's even worse now when you have things like YouTube, which is just, you're basically asking to never make any money if you use YouTube. You could get some people to watch it, but you're sitting in a gigantic lake out there. Whereas if you end up on Netflix and Netflix actually puts you on the first page where you can be seen, you're literally talking a million people could see what you just made. Now, you don't make any more money if more people watch it because Netflix doesn't do that. Amazon Prime does, but it's like hundredths of a penny if somebody watches your thing. And Amazon Prime is real easy to get up on. In fact, in some cases, you can just upload something if it's of a certain quality. Sometimes they buy stuff. If you're a new Tom Hanks film, so it's, you need someone out there like pitching and working. And another reason we started Som TV because we wanted to be extremely particular about what we made and what the production value was, but we also wanted to be able to make it inexpensively. And Netflix will find out you made something for 50 grand, 250 grand. And they'll go, it was cheap to make. So we'll offer you 250 grand and we own it forever. Goodbye. And then you say no to that and they go, well, go somewhere else then. That's why a lot of the films you see, they cost a lot of money so that Netflix is not going to buy them completely out. Netflix is going to give them $400,000 to license it for three years. And you know the process, I mean, these are numbers I'm making up, but it's like, it's a very Byzantine process in the way that it happens. And so we created, again, Som TV at the risk of making a heck of a lot less money, but being able to control the pipeline or being able to at least control who we partnered with, having visibility of who our customers were and being able to provide them a little bit better service. All of these things are what happens. And then, you know, the straight up way to do this for this question is to say iTunes. You know, like if you go on iTunes and you rent a movie and it's $4.99, Apple takes 30%. So then whatever you have left of that, your distributor takes their 30 or 50 or some ghastly cases, like 70%. And then you get whatever's left in whatever quarterly deal they say. So that's like your basic independent film situation. Now there's a million variations. Sorry about the quick answer there. (laughs) That's what we wanted to know. You mentioned control being a big part of launching SOM TV. Is that all the content? Is SOM 4 not going to then be on Netflix or something like that? I can tell you this. It's going to premiere on SOM TV. Because I feel very strongly, and I think this comes down to my roots as a documentary filmmaker, don't do something unless you're all in. And so the worst thing I could do to SOM TV, we have this film about the Judgment of Paris coming in May. I've got a film called The Whole Animal coming in April that I directed. It took years and years. 
all of these projects, if I don't give them all to this, what would be the point of having done it in the first place? I mean, we have worked harder on Sam TV than anything I've ever done in my life. So why not give it the best food that I could possibly make? And on top of it too, what you get from Netflix or Hulu, and God bless them because I love so many people that work there and they're great companies, but they will say, Sam worked and it was very reality show-ish. Make more of that. And I'm like, well, maybe I want to tell something that has to do with the time of Christ and the origin of religion and has to do with some real serious human relationship to wine. doesn't mean it won't be funny, but you know, Netflix is going to look at us and go, eh, sounds too highbrow. Whereas on some TV, that is, for lack of a better term, that's our Ocean's 12. That's what everybody wants to watch. It's kind of this very, and we have to build, just like Netflix did when they started, we have to build the audience and train them kind of how to receive and where to get it and what to do. And the answer is we plan Psalm 4, we'll go to Psalm TV. Whether it appears on another service at a later time in a different window, I don't know. We'll see. It's tough. I mean, obviously, if we put it on Netflix, a lot more people would see it. I don't even know if Netflix wants it. You don't know until you go out because at the moment when you're finished at that point, Netflix works off an algorithm and several other reasons. They may be working on only looking for sports films. Or if they're buying documentaries, they're only buying them outright so they can own the IP. They don't want to rent stuff. Our stuff's not for sale. So it's tricky. Hope that's an okay answer. No, that was good. In the past, you were using these channels as a way to create awareness. You've now created enough awareness that you've made some TV. When you have your big headline content, like your pillar, you know, that you're building around, like Psalm 4, you're going to have it premiere on some TV, potentially put it out into other platforms because at this point you have a brand and probably could get that and use that as a, an awareness or marketing vehicle to help bring people back to some TV. Is that what I heard? Yeah, I think that makes sense. We also do, you know, prior to COVID, a huge portion of our business was doing events with films and screenings and tastings. And like, we sort of look at it as like something you'd want to actually pay to get a babysitter to go to. And I don't care how bad theaters get, these events will always have merit forever. You will always want to go watch something you're into, sit next to your wife and drink a bottle of Ridge Montebello. You're going to want to do that. If the price is right, you're going to want to get out of your house and do that. So that's coming back and we're working hard. That was a big part of our revenue was doing those type of events. And I often was traveling and promoting the films and we work with PR and all this stuff. We will put it up on iTunes and all that stuff so you can rent it. I mean, you don't have to go to Psalm TV. To me, it would make no sense. You get multiple months for what it costs to rent a movie on iTunes. So it's kind of like one of those things, but some people just don't want to be part of a subscription service. And I respect that too. So we try to make it available. I'm curious for people who are trying to make wine content in terms of those streaming platforms, Netflix and iTunes, Hulu, Amazon Prime, is there one that you find a better platform for wine content to fit your films? Yeah, I think Hulu is probably my favorite. I have children in the house, so my favorite to watch, Disney Plus is always on. I happen to think Stars has the best movies. And then like HBO Max is pretty good. But like, I do think Hulu, they take some of the biggest swings as far as like the things that they put on may not look like it, but Netflix is incredibly careful. I mean, a lot of their movies look very similar to each other. If Sandra Bullock works, you're going to see more Sandra Bullock. It is just how it works. And so I would say Hulu, to be very honest. Hulu's also got a much deeper archive of stuff. Hulu, they take big swings. I think they're interesting. They put really good docs up. They're not afraid to put stuff up that I think a lot of people think are pretty controversial. They go for it. I mean, it's with the algorithms, they can target different audiences based on their watch profiles. It's smart. The more content's better in some ways. So you've made multiple sequels. You've made two sequels to Psalm. You have a third one in the works. I'm curious, after the success of Psalm 1, did the business model for subsequent films change or has it just been refined a little bit? Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> Gotta get myself in trouble here. But if you've ever watched what Netflix does, they license a thing. When it's successful, they don't license it again and then they make their own version. They do it with nature docs. They do a stand-up comedy. It doesn't matter. You name it. 
if they rent a horror film or a mobster film or anything and it works, they will just make their own. They'll hire David Attenborough and David Attenborough narrates their nature documentaries now. It's like Trader Joe's. It couldn't be a better analogy because <laughs> if you watch, they took some, some too, they licensed them. Those did very well. What do they do? They made Uncorked, that film that is literally, I'm sorry, but it's a complete ripoff of some. It's really great to see black people drinking wine. So I'm actually not mad about it because frankly, it's a narrative, not that. But if you look at it, it's got scenes lifted right out of the film. And the filmmakers behind are brilliant people. So I don't mean this in like an antagonistic way, but that's what Netflix does. That's just like their model. It's just business. Yeah, it's just business. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So our model changed in that way too, because we realized, obviously we need Netflix way more than Netflix needs us. So let me be clear about that. But at the same time, it's also like, all right, why are we giving Netflix our numbers of how well this stuff performs and just basically saying, hey, beat the hell out of us, you know? And so we don't want to do that. There's no reason if we don't have to. Now, reach is always going to be an issue. We're never going to be Netflix. And I don't frankly want to be Netflix. I don't get any sleep as it is. So the truth is, when you look at that, our business model changed enormously. I wanted an OTT, which is like an over-the-top thing like Netflix or Hulu. When we first started, Forgot Men Films, so our company. And I was looked at not like being crazy, but a little crazy. And most people said, we don't have the infrastructure, the technology doesn't last. So when Psalm 3 came out, and Psalm 1 and 2, I believe, were just ending their Netflix deal, we went back to Netflix thinking they were going to take all three. And they did this very strange thing. They offered us a small amount of money, respectful, but small for Psalm 3. And they were contemplating taking one and two again. This is before Uncorked came out. So now obviously I know why they did it. But we looked at each other and we're like, that's not enough money to continue doing our job. We can't. And so we said, what if we were to start this OTT thing and maybe see if we can give it a go while we have a tiny bit of runway? We did that. And luckily we did that because four months later, the pandemic hit and we would have been in deep Deep. I mean, you'd be talking to a gas station attendant right now, probably, if we hadn't started Som TV prior to the pandemic. Because not that it's made a ton of money or anything, it's just been able to make us continue, allow us to continue to make things and work with wineries and do all of these very interesting things. You know, restaurants were hit the same way as the entertainment business, maybe worse. My goal is to totally get you guys off topic every time I answer a question. Let's see if you guys <laughs> can stay focused here. Yeah. <laughs> you mentioned there's a wide range of costs to making films. When it comes to documentaries or some of the things for Assam TV, what's that range and has it gone up as you've gained more popularity or success? Yeah, I mean, the range is like, you'd be shocked. I will not name a name, but I was at a very prominent film festival in Spain and Psalm 2 was like one of the marquee films there. And another guy who I just adore had made another wine film, a really good one. He came up to me, it was after the screening of my film and he goes, I really love what you did with the film. And we traveled to like nine countries in that film. It was, you know, wild process. And he looked at me and said, I really wish that I had the budget to do some of the things you guys did, you know, the time lapse and all the travel and all that stuff. And I asked him, I said, what was your budget in the film? He said it was $850,000. And I almost dropped my head on the ground. He came to me and said, I wish I had the budget you had. And I looked at him like, I didn't make my film for an eighth of what you made yours. You have to understand too, this is definitely a very different world. So the range is enormous, but also I'd like to continue not just owning the films, not from a profit standpoint, I'd like to continue gardening them and figuring out where we want them to be. And his is gone. He sold it. He got paid more. But in the long term, our company still owns the movies. We can do with it what we want. He can't do that. So in a weird way, maybe budget is different than the money that he's speaking of. But it is the range can go. I mean, there are plenty of docs that cost millions of dollars. Plenty. Some of those are just a fee you pay Michael Jackson's team. But others, if you see real music in a documentary, generally, you can assume it costs more than 500,000, right off the top of your head. I've never had real music in a documentary outside of one I made about a Hollywood actress named Wait for Your Laugh. 
But outside of that, you know, I've hired composers. We always work lean and mean. And the other thing too is like, you don't want to see Psalm 4 and you're like, look at that CGI dragon. Like, wow. <laughs> There's no reason for it to jump to that kind of a level. I don't need a million dollars to make these films. And if I had it, I would still try to make it look like 10 million. No matter what I did, I'm always fighting against that stream. So it's a slightly tough question. In documentaries too, it's not like you're in most cases, and I'm not talking about like Ancient Aliens on History Channel, which is not a documentary. You're not paying people in the film. And when you are, or if you have to, you have to really figure out, is that the right decision? Because the second you give somebody money, you can manipulate them in a way that's uncomfortable to me, and they can manipulate you in a way that's potentially uncomfortable to the film. And now if you choose your right subject, and they're just somebody who's really busy, and it's like, this is my fee to be in something, and they'll speak honestly, well, then that's fine, and if you can afford it. But for the most part, documentaries are expensive to make in a very different way. They require a lot of decisions and a lot of hours and manpower, and you can't make them factory. They just don't work. So it has not really gotten more expensive, but they have gotten a hell of a lot harder to make because the ambitions are bigger. I'm trying to get access to places, you know, we're filming in the Vatican for the fourth one, and it's tough. A lot of political red tape. But it's also, the Vatican's not like, hey, give me 10,000 bucks and you can film here. It's the Vatican. They're like, how'd you get this number? It's just <laughs> a different kind of thing. And I think it's also not making a car. You know, the hard costs are very different. They're just, how late can you stay up? And I'm assuming your core team has stayed. You obviously have the cinematographer, your wife, you. Exactly the same. So you kept that core team. You guys are all part of the company. That's also helped keeping that cost down because you guys are all vested. Definitely. You have to understand too, one of the things was we all looked at each other. We fight like hell and we party like hell together. And we all looked at each other and we're like, let's do this forever. It's part of the thing where there's an extreme humility and a tremendous amount of respect for each other that someday in my life, I will look back at this and I'm going to miss it so, so much. Because right now it's lightning in a bottle, maybe not for us to get rich, but to be creatively fulfilled and make something that I think in 10, 20 years, we're going to look back and go, how the hell did we pull that off? I'm living it right now and I couldn't do it without the team. It's impossible. So there's six people on the team that I have worked with for 15, 20 years. You know, we all go back to the travel show and everything and no one's skipped a beat and we've added a lot of people along the way. And then we're all on salary. So it's an interesting thing. I know you're probably going to ask, like, how does that work? Well, if I make 10 films in a year, I don't make any more money. The company does. Theoretically, someday I could. But the truth is, this is such a fragmented business editors get a certain rate and it seems very high, but they don't work every day. So our thought was, what if we could do a salary, work with people at that right age where they can appreciate some security, find real healthcare, have a real job for people, but then also say, hey, let's push ourselves like we're 22 still, just because it doesn't mean you don't get vacation stuff, but it's like, what's stopping us? The only thing stopping us is our own energy. So, I mean, I think that's why we all chose, let's be salaried, make less money, get to work together and do what we want. So in 2012, you released Psalm 1. In 2015, you had directed six episodes of Uncorked on the Esquire Network. I was wondering if you could just give a brief overview of that project and how, how it went. I executive produced it. My wife and I executive produced it. They came to us and they wanted to turn Sam into a series. I was reluctant as all hell. But I did like the idea of there being women and I was hoping it was going to be a little bit more diverse. I think the show was good. There are some people in the show that have like since been very canceled from actions they've done and things like that. The process was good. I wasn't ever on set. That was intentional. I didn't want to come in and tell a different production company, which was hired, you know, with my guidance and everything, how to do their job. You know, I live in Los Angeles. And the one problem with Uncorked would be if I step on, I'm immediately going to be like, here's how it should happen. Here's what you're doing. They don't need that crap. They can do it. So it's like, if you trust somebody to have the responsibility, you got to give them the authority. I executive produced it. We watched cuts. We cast or helped cast it at least to the best of our ability and worked through the story arcs the best we could. 
And then in the end, you know, much like some, some people passed, some people didn't, and you didn't really have control over who that was. But it was an interesting experience. You know, it's the first time I had ever done anything that was a network or cable television show or anything like that. Like I said, the business has gone through some serious growing pains, like all have. The changes that are happening are definitely for the better, but I don't even know where you can watch Uncork now. I am curious, though, because I was making more episodic content, kind of like what you're doing now with some TV. I'm wondering where there are learnings or takeaways. Maybe you could see that as a precursor to some of the stuff you're doing on some TV now. Not really. I would say nope. <laughs> Uncorked was a different format than I ever would have made it. It was a very straight reality show. I think to the film critics, some looked like that, but some really wasn't a reality show at all. It was a very curated, directed, I mean, at least, I mean, it's my first film, so what the hell do I know? But it was definitely a very different thing than putting people in a room and intentionally making them argue. Some were because they were all friends. This one was a very different type of thing. And I don't mean that in a good or a bad way. It's just, I think my wife, who has a little bit more of a reality show and an entertainment background, would probably say yes to that question as a story producer. For me, I'd say absolutely not. We have a show right now a cooking competition show on Som TV that was a hell of a lot of work. I'm really proud of it, but it couldn't be a more different structure. I don't know. It's not that I didn't respect it. I just wouldn't say it guided me at all on our episodic stuff. No, no I'm mean, sure I learned something, but nothing that comes to mind as far as like, I wasn't on set either. So we've talked a lot about Som TV. Can you give us an overview of what exactly is Som TV? Yeah. So, I mean, it's Som TV is much like Hulu or Netflix or any of these things. I mean, it's technologically, they've got a lot more money and things like that, but it's an OTT. There are apps on almost every device, you know, your iPad, your Samsung TV, your Apple TV, your Roku. And so you download those things, you sign in, and you either buy it on that platform or you buy it on the web like Netflix and then you sign in. And so it basically has right now, I think it's like 96% of the content or more is original. You know, there's films like Bottle Shock and all these wine films and a ton of food films, some really good ones are up there. But for the most part, we have our own shows, we have our own series, and we went the opposite direction in Netflix. They started with hundreds of hours of licensed content and then went into making their own originals. We started only with originals and now we're trying to license. So it's a very different thing, but it is a worldwide streaming service that is focused on wine and food, tons of food stuff coming. The next two years are going to be very big as far as the wine stuff goes or food stuff goes. So why exactly did you decide to launch your own streaming service when, as you mentioned, there are a lot of others out there? Because when you look at this audience, I also fell in love with the wine world. I worked in restaurants forever, and I realized there is an audience that is not being served. And we thought we could super serve them. But aside from the people who are working the floor and humping boxes, I'm actually talking about wine collectors, people who, you know, from a lifestyle standpoint, there's not a lot of ways to understand Alsace as a region. There's not a lot of ways. I mean, people may have heard of Cote Roti, but the wine list itself has always been this thing that people over-dramatize how confusing it is. It's not that confusing. What's confusing is somebody made it. You know, and you don't know that name. But the grapes themselves in the regions, I truly believe if you're into it, it'd be like if you collect baseball cards or something like that, you're going to learn all the teams. You're going to learn maybe where people went to college. I don't think wine is any more difficult than anything like that. If you're into something, you're going to be able to figure it out. But the resources are like a gigantic Sotheby's wine book that weighs 40 pounds. There wasn't like a thing where you could watch people talk. Netflix, they don't want 10 minute pieces of content. We don't want to be YouTube. So we thought we want feature films, series, and then series that are like, hey, look, here are three-minute lessons about X, Y, and Z. It doesn't necessarily have to be intro because everybody makes these videos where they're like, you're brand new to wine. Here's 10 three-minute videos that talk about the most simple things in the world. And I'll be honest with you, there's a lot of experts who want three-minute videos too. It doesn't have to just be like, oh, what's a cork? 
It can be like, hey, what's must weight? What does sugar do in a secondary fermentation? So we have that really geeky stuff, but then we also have stuff like we have a barbecue competition show coming out that's probably going to have so much swearing in it, my mom won't be able to watch it. We wanted to be able to super serve what I believe is the real audience for food, wine, spirits, bourbon, beer. That's everybody. Even if you don't drink, you should be able to come to Som TV and go, how do I cook X and Y? If you're vegan, you should be able to go there and find a bunch of stuff, and you will be able to. Because I do believe death taxes and eating is something that everybody does. That's why we created it, and that's why we can't rely on any one other service, because there was no other fit. And we're still evolving, but there just wasn't another fit like Som TV. So I'm curious, as you go to create this, you not only have the tech stack of delivering things over the top directly to consumers, but then... You also have to now pop it in with a lot of content because you basically, you have an appetite that you have to satiate for your users. So I'm curious, do you have an end insight of like how much content do you think this platform needs to be making in order to realize its full potential? Yeah, I do. Right now, my team is working and I'm going to say this answer and they're going to be like, why did I just feel stressed out? I think there should be stuff going up every day. Every single day, there should be new content. And I'm trying very hard to lift and make it transparent so people understand what's coming in the future. And that's not just to keep subscribers. That's so that people can understand, oh, look, if I want to order a bottle of wine or I want to be whatever, I know this is coming. And then it also creates a backwardsness that we're small enough. I mean, we have a lot of subscribers, but we're small enough where we can actually talk to our subscribers. People actually can reach out to us and we actually reach back and say, thanks, Jim. We will work on that. We'll try more content. And if somebody really does want something more about wine region in Santa Barbara, we can actually do that. So it's a really fun period. <laughs> I hope that answers. I think yeah, every no. single day. But you have your tiered content. So like you have your Psalm 4s, your Judgment of Paris, you have your big shows you hope people will binge or watch weekly. But then you also have your maintenance content. We have 10 or so shows that we're hoping every single Wednesday a show comes out. And there should be 10 other shows that every day this person's show comes out on coffee and this person's show comes out on whiskey. There is a new thing every day, but it's calculated or multiple things. So I have a question which you may or may not be able to answer or may not want to answer. Sure. How big is Som TV in terms of the size and how big do you think it could be realistically in the next couple of years? Sure. I mean, it's hundreds of thousands right now, which is wonderful. I mean, it's incredible. But, you know, to be able to look at what people are watching, we're just sort of starting to get to the number where you can go, here's what people like to watch. We don't ever want to be totally driven by algorithms. You have to have tons of content for that to be the case. But honestly, I look at the word Psalm and I feel like a lot of people in that profession, and I think this is actually a compliment, they have a hard time defining what it means, what a sommelier is. Because they just say, well, you either have to work in the restaurant or not, and they argue about it and blah, blah, blah. I look at a Psalm as they curate. And so, yes, it is definitely focused on wine. But if you look at wine as the center of the wheel and the spokes come out, you've got food, you've got travel, you've got what is the best hotel to stay at in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania or Bone, France. They know that stuff. And so whether or not you have to always be talking about wine, my thing is like, people are like, oh, there's mustard sommeliers now and there's water sommeliers. And I'm like, a sommelier should know that shit. There shouldn't be an individual sommelier that's just in charge of mustard. <laughs> if you're a psalm, you should know that. And if you don't psalm the idea that we've created, I look at them as like Indiana Jones. They are adventuring to find the rarest wines. They're traveling all over the world, but they damn well can tell you what the best deal is in your restaurant or your grocery store or whatever. And they know a lot about mayonnaise. You don't have to have a mayonnaise sommelier. I look at it as like the, go back to your question, the audience is millions. I hope to have in the near future, the largest library of cooking shows that exists on Som TV. People are like, well, it's about wine. It's like, yeah, wine is about everything. So yeah, if you want to drink wine while you're cooking, you're damn right. Here's the biggest library of cooking shows that exists. It's on Som TV. So yeah, it's more like uh, visions of grandeur than delusions because we totally can do it. 
So some TV is $6 a month or $50 a year. How did you come up with your pricing? I have no idea. <laughs> no, <laughs> it was a series of testing and we're still testing, still working through because we're in a period right now. I just am so envious of people. I don't know how old you guys are, but I'm from a period where you would rent movies on VHS from places and you'd freak out because it was like, oh man, Goonies, they have it in. And you could rent Goonies. Now, it's unfathomable how you can watch everything. I don't say this to sound like the old man I walked uphill to go to school type of thing. But now you're in this place where the big companies are intentionally losing money to get you. Everybody with the exception of HBO Max is like, okay, well then let's make it $4.99. All right, then let's make it $3.99, but we'll add commercials. All right, well, let's make it free, but we'll add tons of commercials. They're doing everything they can to get you. So we're kind of like, look, it's not what we're worth because you can't say that. It doesn't matter. There's one thing to say, I am worth something. I know my value. There's another thing to go, look, we're in the middle of probably one of the biggest entertainment content wars that has ever happened since at least the 30s with the theaters and vertical integration in the States. So you have all of these streamers that are trying to choke each other out to find out how do we consolidate, who buys who. And so we just have to sit back and look at the market, be smart, listen to our audience. If people are saying they can't afford $50 a year, I'm incredibly receptive to that. But also, there's not a person that has not spent $50 10, 20 times a year on a bottle of wine. So I look at it as like, I try to place it like that's the idea is like, if you go into a bar and you order a cocktail, chances are it's probably more than $5.99. Well, you can have a month of Som TV, order one less cocktail. And so we're trying to kind of think of it that way. I want as many people to watch this as possible, but it's a very strange thing to find out that lower cost doesn't necessarily mean more subscribers either. It's a lot. And luckily, we have much smarter people than me on the team trying to figure this out because if it was up to me, I would be homeless and giving it away for free. (laughs) Running your own streaming service must require some amount of technology. Is that something you develop yourself or are you leveraging third-party technology? We hired coders and some third-party stuff. It's kind of a mixture. That will be one of the big things we will change is to really bring it all in-house at some point. That is an exponential cost. We're off the back of an existing infrastructure, but we've changed it so much that it's a tough question to answer because we Frankensteined a lot of different things. And it will change hopefully sooner than later to be a much, you know, the experience is great right now, but to be a truly great experience because a lot of things you take for granted when you sign to Netflix, you don't notice that your wife and her account probably has very different thumbnails for the same movies. We can't do that right now. We want to, but the coding for it is astronomical. And it's also one of these, not necessarily expensive, it's a lot of bandwidth to figure out how to do it. And so the things you take for granted with Netflix or whatever else, we have to find workarounds. We're often trying to outthink some of the technology right now. But ask me that in a year, and I hope to say we have built our own platform, and it is fantastic. (laughs) Yeah, definitely something you have to build as you scale, because putting stuff together can be difficult as you go from hundreds of thousands to millions. Yes. So what is the profile at a high level of a SOM TV subscriber? How would you define your average SOM TV user? The very cool thing about it is they're younger. People are kind of surprised to find out our audience generally ranges from about 24 to 37 is the main group, which is obviously your golden apple of people you want because they spend money, they're really interested, they do stuff, they actually take action. And so the majority, something like 70 some percent of our audience is that age group. And so that's the interesting thing. We also find that people just have this automatic thing with wine. I don't understand it that we're like wine spectators audience, like these old white guys. It's like, (laughs) that's just not what it is. Our audience doesn't reflect that at all. And so it's a very strange thing. It goes to show how big the audience is for wine. I mean, I'm sure most of an older generation 
I love them deeply, but technology is a pain in the ass for them. They didn't grow up with it. There's a lot of confusion as to how to do it when you get logged out. And I totally get it because I'm going to be there with whatever that is coming for me. But right now, younger people, they don't think twice about casting something from their phone. They don't think twice about watching something or listening to a podcast while they're in the shower. I don't think the older generation is doing that. And so we naturally have the generation that makes more sense for us. It's very different than when we do screenings. We get a mix mash all over the place. So we'll get a very rowdy young crowd and we'll get older folks who want to just come out and have an experience. But when it comes to the streaming, they look like middle-class, younger people. We don't data farm the hell out of them. So I don't know if they have as nice a beard as you, Robert, but... (laughs) Thanks. What about location? Is it mostly US in terms of location? What about gender? You know, it's a little bit more. It's like 52% men and then 48% women. And then we found that women are growing very fast. I think they are just generally really interested in wine and also having a little bit more time. I don't really know the reason, but it is definitely growing and it should because wine, the world, I experience it from the inside out. It's a hell of a lot more interesting with a better array of people than just a bunch of guys in a room like we made some. So I think it's, um, I'm trying to think, US is by far our largest subscribers, but I think there's only two countries aside from ones we're not allowed to be in, like Iran and China, which people are on it with VPNs, but US and UK are the largest. And then strangely, Brazil is huge. The Nordic countries. We have so many people in Denmark, Sweden, Norway, and they never complain about language. They speak English better than we do. And so they watch it. Nothing. No problems. No issues. It blows me away. Brazil's a running joke. Every influencer we talk to, like Brazil's always in their top five demographics. And it's confusing to everybody. It's so weird, right? It's weird. Yeah. So one thing I will comment as a subscriber, you do a great job of diversity in terms of people in your stories and, and the content you're delivering. I'm curious, have you seen that pan out and translate into your user base or do you not know that information? I don't know. I also don't care. I learned something on some. It's always a tough conversation to have this, but the win was not in the movie because he was black. The win was in the movie because he was hilarious and he was friends and we liked him. And it's easy to say that in retrospect, but it made me realize when the film came out and there were women going, why aren't there more women? The film is an accurate representation of the court and that situation, but still it makes you realize with a platform That's not how you should approach this stuff. It's just not. And I can't overstate how much more interesting and more fun the wine business has gotten. People were already there. It's not like it's like, ooh, they got to join. They were there. Any of these people, doesn't matter what their background or their gender or their sexuality or any of this stuff, they were already there. It's just people are starting to go, hey, what do you want to talk about? And so it's gotten so much more interesting, like tenfold in two years, three years, just by listening to people that were already there trying to talk. And so I would assume, I mean, I can't believe that opening up to more audience would have anything but a positive effect on your business because it just makes more sense. If you're trying to sell wine, sell it to more people. And so I think I would say yes, but I don't know. Generally, when we sign up, we don't ask people what their ethnicity is. And so we don't know. And honestly, I would say it again, I don't care. We are not even a tenth of where I want to be in this regard. And that requires more content. It requires things that are, it's not even hard questions. You just got to walk the walk. You just got to do it. And you got to let people who are not normally represented actually make the content. That's the next thing. It's one thing to have people on screen. It's another thing to have them make what's on screen. That's the most important thing. We're getting there. We're working on it every moment. So you mentioned you've got a new cooking and wine pairing competition show coming up on Som TV. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah, it's airing now. It's called Sparklers. It is effing hilarious. Basically, we took a bunch of different sparkling wine regions and we took one of the more famous dishes in each one of those regions and made it a focus of a cooking challenge. And then there's this whole perfect bite thing where you have to make an entire meal on one spoon type of a thing. And there's guest judges in every 
odd episode, but the even numbers, whoever won that previous one judges everybody else. And so it becomes this very interesting thing where you have to judge your friends, but you have the choice of, do I pick the best meal? Because that person probably has a lot of points and I'm up against them. Or do I pick the worst meal strategically, but everyone knows it? You come into this thing where there's like, it created a show that the way it ended, I went through the seven levels of all sorts of pain with the show because we we're like, is it going to work? We're going to try it out live. And the way it ends, I telling you guys, you could never have written this. I mean, it is, I don't know if you like football movies, but if you like the movie Rudy, this one is right up there with that kind of a story. We're just like, how the hell did this happen in the end? It's so great. It's airing now. The final episode is February 8th on Sam TV. So it sounds like you pitted some of them against each other in a way by making them judge each other. Did that ruin oh, sure. any friendships? <laughs> no, no, no. We've gotten that question over and over again. I've gotten it from a lot of press. You know, I've never directed it. I don't look at it as a reality show, a cooking competition show, because it's not like we follow them in their home or anything like that. You know, it's not like that. But I've been asked like, okay, so it ruined the friendships and it did this and it did that. And Jackson, who founded the company, his wife was a producer on Top Chef for a long time. And I asked her, she said, oh my God, people don't speak to each other ever again after these shows. And I'm like, really? These people are like the closest best friends because of this experience that exists. I mean, I'm sure a lot of them would like to be able to finally tell people who wins. But for the most part, they were friends when it started. And so it's kind of like Sam. Going through Sam, all those guys, they didn't hate each other because of what they did. And the stuff they said about each other in the films is the same kind of stuff you talk shit on your friends. And it's not like you're not going to be friends because you said somebody's losing their mind and needs a break and needs to relax and acting like a jerk. And so it's similar. It's a pretty nice show in a way. It's much more realistic. We don't bait people into saying Susie's got a fat butt or something like that, like you see on some of these reality shows. It's really just pretty straightforward. Everyone respects each other, but wants to win. And that's where the coolness comes in. They're all friends though, amazingly. In addition to all the video content you're doing, you guys have also expanded into podcasting, which is interesting because a lot of those other platforms and streaming services don't really diversify into different forms of media. I'm curious... Why did you make the venture into podcasting? Because we had a very tiny, non-existent marketing budget. And so one of the things I thought is, let's do a podcast and let's use that to talk about stuff on the network. I have a lot of context in the wine world. Let's get some athletes on and, you know, shoot the shit and have a conversation, but really have it draw back to some TV so that I can do that. Problem is, it really blew up and it became a full-time job. And I didn't expect that. But we always kind of wanted, I really admire The Ringer what Bill Simmons has done over at The Ringer. And I think having a podcast network where everybody feeds back to each other, the guests from each show are always on each other's shows. And you sort of create a personality web and you care about pop culture and you care about stuff that actually matters. And I could do it through the lens of wine was really appetizing to me. And so when the podcast sort of took off, I realized there was a big opportunity. So that's when we gave Shakira her podcast, Shakira Jones, who has a glass for every palate. And then Jill Zamorski, Master Somalia, who reviews wine books and reading and drinking. And what else do we have? We've got History of Wine with Matthew Kainer. We have two or three more coming. And so it kind of became this thing where, frankly, it's not that pods require a lot of time. As you guys know, probably better than me, they require a lot of planning. But then particularly, they're not expensive to make, really, but your time is very valuable. So we're like, okay, if people will go along for the ride, we'll do this. And for the most part, it's been incredibly eye-opening and positive and wonderful. And I really never saw a difference. You know, I'd like to have an app that has all of it together, but podcasts are cool because they're out there. I mean, you can get our podcast on the Som TV app, but they're out there. They're for free. You don't have to subscribe. That's another thing too, is like, it's nice to have something that's outside of a paywall and not in the paywall besides Instagram or Twitter or whatever else. So it's a totally new thing. I'm surprised more don't do it, frankly, but they do fail. I don't know. I was listening to like a Band of Brothers podcast. I tried to listen to it. It was terrible. 
I love Band of Brothers. I mean, it's a show I love. I love World War, I don't love World War II, but I'm interested in it. And so I just think a lot of these Netflix movies, you would think if you were to do something on The Irishman, it would be really interesting about Jimmy Hoffa's disappearance. But the problem is they just don't go 100% all in on it. And they're not repeatable. So it's like you just have it and then it sits out there. What happens to it? Because most podcasts right now, they get licensed to make series. That's what Wondery is trying to do. So it's like, if you already have a series, why make a podcast? I don't know. It's a circular thing we think about often. So what do you think makes podcasts different from film or other forms of media? I think it's one of the great permissions to kill time. So like you can put a podcast in here and you can clean the kitchen and not have to think about it. You don't have to like really, really be involved. And I think that's why podcasts work. I really do because if you tune in and out, if you take your headphones out, if your kid comes up and asks you for something, it's very different than a movie which demands, you know, it demands your attention and you almost feel guilty for looking at your phone. And it's just a different thing where podcasts, they give you permission to sort of be in and out. Or, you know, if it's story driven, you choose to wait until you're alone for it. You have a much larger amount of control with podcasts than you do with the other stuff. This is how I look at it. I think you got to approach a podcast the same way you would approach anything. If you're going to write a short story, you got to do it well. If it sucks, no one's going to listen to it. And that's just a fact across all forms. <laughs> and so you said the podcasts are free. Do you have other monetization for it? It's obviously marketing for us on TV and brings back to it. But do you do advertising or other things on the shows? We've dabbled in it. I mean, the numbers are good enough to do it. And we've always been slightly resistant because it changes what it is. But at the same time, I think I would have no problem with integrated sponsorships where it's not you stop and it's brought to you by Sealy Mattresses or something like that and you have to come back. Of course, it's going to go that direction. But at the same time, though, I think it has to be handled with grace. Nobody wants to be sold. So people realize something's a commercial, they go, all right, I'm out. So you got to cleverly sell something. You got to pick the right stuff to sell. I think that's the other important thing is you can't just sell anything anyone wants you to. I'm sure my CFO would disagree. <laughs> <laughs> so Jason, to wrap up the episode, we wanted to bring it back on a personal note. What was the most memorable wine you've consumed over the last year and who did you drink it with? Yeah, sure. Okay. This is a tough one. We drink a lot of wine, a lot of really cool bottles. Oh, I know. I've seen where you've been traveling. Yeah, it's pretty wild stuff. Spotswood Winery is a really beautiful place up in Napa. It's run by two sisters after their parents passed away. They are absolutely at the forefront of caring about the environment and all these things. But aside from any of that, their wine is freaking delicious. We got to drink their first vintage of Cab that they made while their mother was still alive. I think it's an 82. So it's not incredibly old, but it was an 82. And it was a tremendous experience to sit there with the Spotswood sisters and drink that. That stands out as one of the big ones. But man, if you really get me going on this, this is a real big problem. That was for Behind the Glass, one of our episodes of that show that we had that sort of profiles winery families. But it was an incredible bottle of wine and they made it without really knowing what they were doing at all. And it just held up so incredibly. And if you think about 82 and Napa, everyone just assumes the Judgment of Paris made it all blow up and None of that's true. 82, it was still just like, you can make an orchard there. It would have been fine. So it's really tremendous that they were making great wine at that age. I thought you were maybe going to go with something from the Lafitte Rothschild because I know you guys got it. Yeah, it's too easy. Yeah, well, because you guys got access. Like, it was one of the few places. Yeah, the whole Lafitte thing is one of those things where even I watch it and I made it, but I watch it and I'm like, I just still can't believe that happened because, you know, the Rothschilds have never told their story. They probably never will again. Not because of us. They just don't do that. And so to be able to open those bottles, okay, 45 Rothschild was pretty special. (laughs) But it's also like the difference between the Rothschild and the Spotswood is you could probably drink a Spotswood tomorrow. You might be able to drink a Rothschild, but if you do, you know, hire me because I can't drink it very often. We drink some tremendous stuff, but we don't take it for granted. It's an incredible, incredible situation. And I'm glad you watched that. It really means a lot to me. 
you hit a lot of the geeky nature of Peter and I in terms of that. I find it very fascinating. I'm super interested to hear about the old champagne bottle following that. I haven't watched that yet. I'm not sure if that's out. It comes in June. It's auction lot 288 is what it's called. That's right up our alley as well. It's going to be great. Jason, thank you so much for all the time and honestly answering all of our crazy questions. I wasn't sure if you're going to be able to answer half of them, but you did so well. We want to thank you for all your time and answers. It's a pleasure to be on, gentlemen. Thank you. Don't forget to go to patreon.com slash xchateau if you'd like to support us in bringing you the highest quality content on the business of wine. Thanks for joining us. If you loved this episode of X Chateau, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and give a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. Until next time, cheers. Cheers.